Good evening. You're in the right place. Welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for almost 10 years. I'm ready to answer your questions about birds this evening, so let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. So we usually start with a recap of the conservation tip that we end with in the previous show, but we did a, our joint episode with Dr. Beverly Burden of What's Bugging You, and we have our beloved bug, Birds and the Bees episode in April, so I don't do the typical bird calls program or schedule or line of events, so we didn't have a conservation tip, but we're going to talk about a few things. Um, I wanted to first mention that of course, spring migration is underway, and there have been a lot of people who are running their seed feeders that have had, had been lucky to get things at their feeders like rose-breasted grosbeaks. It's a black and white bird. The male's black and white with a kind of a bleeding heart chest. That's where he gets the name, rose-breasted grosbeak. Um, a lot of people getting this tiny little blue bird called an indigo bunting, and another tiny little very colorful bird. Looks like it probably would be in a parakeet family, but it's not. It's the painted bunting, uh, very colorful like a parakeet. It doesn't look like a parakeet. It's just multicolored is what I'm referring to. And, and there are other uh, birds that are coming to feeders. So that's going to shut down in May. That That's usually an April-May thing. So enjoy it while we have it. These are A lot of these, like the rose-breasted grosbeak, are headed north to breed um, farther north than the listening area here. So that's just a migrant that's refueling on a long journey just like you and I would when it's time to gas up or get some food on a long trip. So I wanted to play a couple recordings. The first one is is a bird that that we hear a lot um, at this time of the year and I wanted to play the the tufted titmouse because it's it's just going crazy right now. So let's let's, let's listen to the titmouse. Peter, 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 Peter. We've profiled this bird before, but we're just recapping it because they're just nonstop singing right now. They're very territorial right now. They're working on having babies. And so that bird is just going crazy in, in urban areas or out in the woods. Let's listen one more time to the tufted titmouse. And there, there's one more I want, want to play real quick that um, we've, we've profiled a couple times. Um, and, and you'll hear it day or night, but when it's raining or has just rained, you'll hear, hear this critter a lot. Let's listen. I'll tell you what it is on the backside. So those are very bird-like, but they're not birds. 
Those are gray tree frogs, and we have those in the listening area, and they can go crazy vocalizing in our backyards or out in the countryside in the deep dark woods. And uh, if you think it's a bird, go for it, stalk it, try to find it, but it's a little frog called the gray tree frog. Let's listen one more time. I love those. That's a great, great call. Thank you. All right, we're going to move on to our profile species. Tonight we're profiling the cedar waxwing, a beautiful and familiar backyard bird. The calls of the cedar waxwing are simple and not at all musical. Let's listen to the very high-pitched, I stress very high-pitched, thin notes of a cedar waxwing. think you're hearing silence it could be that the high frequency isn't registering for you but let's keep listening it's it's vocalizing the cedar waxwing really hard to hear so again it's not very musical it's simple it's very high pitched for the most part, cedar waxwings are what are known as frugivores, a species with a diet mostly of fruits. Here in the deep south, this is a species that occurs in flocks in the winter and spring where it sweeps through cities and countryside in search of berry-giving shrubs and trees. A flock can strip an entire shrub or tree in minutes, and then they're off in search of their next meal. A popular colloquial name for the cedar waxwing is cherry bird cherry bird. The sexes are alike in cedar waxwings and there's rarely a feather out of place on these handsome birds. Their head is mostly tan with a black mask through the eyes and a sleek crest atop their head. Their belly is yellow and the tips of their tail are also yellow. The cedar part of the bird's name refers to its fondness eating red cedar berries and the waxwing part for the red waxy appendages on the tips of the bird's secondary flight feathers. They look like red wax dripping down a candle. Those red waxy secretions likely serve as plumage enhancements to signal to others in the flock some basic information about their age, social status, and sexual maturity. Thus, they likely function in mate selection. The waxy tips are an accumulation of the organic pigment astaxanthin, a carotenoid that gives red fruits their color. The red tips increase in number and size with an individual waxwing's age, while immature birds often show no red at all. This migratory species has a huge breeding range across the northern half of the U.S. and the southern half of Canada. In winter, they can be found anywhere in the entire lower 48 states south through Central America. To see a photo of a cedar waxwing snapped by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. Okay, tonight I'm excited to introduce our phone-in guest, and I, she, she's our first guest we've ever had from Arkansas. How about that? So Alex Matthews is going to come on the air here in a second. She's from north, originally from North Little Rock, Arkansas, and she's always been interested in birds. 
and she was an undergrad, under, undergrad student at Rhodes College in Memphis, and she's been studying uh, birds and variety of other symbionts for about a decade, so she's going to explain what that means here in a minute. She's currently a doctoral candidate of molecular biosciences at Arkansas State University in Jonesboro, Arkansas. She's studying the ecology and evolution of mites that live on the feathers of birds, specifically of warblers. So, Alex Matthews, are you there? Yes. Great. How's it going, Cliff? <laughs> Doing well. How are you? Pretty good. good. Thank you. So, Happy to be here. Great. So, yeah, you and I have known each other for several years, and, and I, I had to have you on because you, you study such a interesting part of the of a bird's life. You're studying the ectoparasites or ectosymbionts. I'll let you uh, define those here in, in a minute. Um, but but I think it's just fascinating. You know, there are, there are these hitchhikers on birds that we don't see um, unless maybe with a, a, a special lens or close-up view or an electron microscope in some cases. But um, birds are covered sometimes in these in in these uh, mites and lice and things. So we're going to talk about that tonight. So um, why don't you, before you give a brief bio sketch, why don't you tell us a little bit about what an ectosymbiont is and an ectoparasite? Yeah. So um, in an ectosymbiont is kind of an all-encompassing term for any organism that. Um, lives on a larger, any smaller organism that lives on a, on a larger organism um, and kind of depends on that larger organism for its survival or reproduction or um, some part of its, some important part of its life. And so symbi symbionts can either be parasites in which they are causing um, harm to their host or they can be mutualists where they are actually providing a service to their host, benefiting, um, benefiting their host, or they can be commensals, which are neither harming nor helping their host in any way that we can measure. Um, but a lot of times those categorizations are um, kind of hard to, kind of hard to, it's sometimes hard to put uh, symbionts into those three categories, mm -hmm. and so they may shift between categories where under some context they're parasitic and in other contexts they're mutualists or commensals or something. But um, the ecto in, uh, in front of the term ectosymbiont just means that they're living on the outside of the host mm -hmm. versus endosymbionts, which are living on the, the inside of host. Right, right. So, yeah. When you when you're defining ectoparasite, I was thinking, gosh, I've got two teenagers. That sounds pretty familiar. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they're they're sucking my blood dry or my pocketbook. So, yeah. So so Alex, tell us a little bit about yourself. I I introduced you as as our first guest from Arkansas, but tell us more about about you and where where you're born, where you've lived, and went to school, hobbies, all that good stuff. Yeah, sure. So, so um, like you said, I, I was born and raised in North Little Rock, Arkansas. So that's just um, just on the other side of the river from Little Rock. Um, and most of my most of my family still lives in that general area. My brother actually lives in the house we grew up in. Um, and then I went to undergraduate in Memphis, Tennessee, 
at Rhodes College and um, got my degree in environmental sciences, and I had a uh, have a minor in economics as well. So there, mm. there was kind of a cool little. Um, there's a lot of parallels between ecology and economics um, that I kind of dabbled in in my undergraduate work. Um, and then I, I moved to Jonesboro, where I got my Jonesboro, Arkansas, where I got my uh, master's degree in uh, biological sciences, and I started studying mites. Um, and then in between, well, after my master's, I, I moved to Nacogdoches, where I got to meet you and um, all the other lovely people in, in Nacogdoches. Mm-hmm. And then I worked at UT Tyler as a, as a laboratory manager for a symbiosis lab, um, but it was focused, the lab was focused on ant symbioses, so fungus farming ants, which I can talk about as well later if you want me to. Cool. Um, and now I'm back in Jonesboro working on my, um, working on finishing my PhD in molecular biosciences and, and studying feather mites again on, on birds. And some of my hobbies, so I do, I do really enjoy bird watching. Um, it's not just, it's not just something that I, not, not just something that I study, but that I actually like to, to do. Um, and my, along with that, like hiking and, um, bicycling. And I've also recently gotten into running. Um, and I am a lifelong tap dancer, which is kind of. A tap dancer. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's, that's, that's a, that's a pretty good system you've got going there all these different things you're doing good activities so what got you started in birds and did a family member was was a family member a bird watcher before you were uh i i would say my probably my grandparents were kind of like backyard bird watchers um that i think kind of uh sparked my interest in birds Mm -hmm. i was always outside we had um some undeveloped land behind our house that led down to a lake. And my brother and I would just spend a lot of time in the woods, just like flipping rocks and looking at, just looking at stuff out there, just kind of exploring nature. Um, But my grandparents had a lake house and I always thought it was really cool that we could hear the whippoorwills at their, at their lake house at night. And then they, they also have, probably 15 hummingbird feeders and so we would we would sit on the the deck in the mornings and watch i get to watch the hummingbirds so i think that all of those things i think i was a budding um avian ecologist but just didn't know it um because it took me until college to realize that i could actually you know do this for a living yeah um and get to get to be a bird watcher and get to learn really cool stuff about birds um for, for, you know, get paid for it. Yeah, and speaking of studying birds, you're studying a, a fascinating aspect of the lives of birds. So tell us a little bit more about the study of bird feathers and, and ectoparasites and ectosymbionts. Um, like, for example, ha- how many species of are we talking about? Um, are there new species still undescribed, do you think, that are out there? And and can an individual bird harbor multiple species of ectoparasites at the same time? Yeah, so so ecto, ectoparasites are, are really interesting, and, and, and you kind of alluded to it at the beginning. The, a, a bird is, itself is kind of an ecosystem 
um, an individual bird is sort of an ecosystem of its own, so it can harbor lots of different um, ectoparasites, ectosymbionts, um, different species at the same time. Um, so it can have ticks or it can have mites and lice. And, and birds also harbor a number of endoparasites. So that's actually what got me started um, in sort of this symbiont world um, with birds is for my undergraduate um, research project, I was working with avian malaria, mm. um, which is a, a blood parasite that's transmitted by mosquitoes and other, other bugs. And um, so that sort of got me interested in, okay, these are, you know, birds are harboring lots and lots of different um, species within and on them. And I, I just wanted to learn more and more about sort of this whole ecosystem that's occurring on an individual bird within the larger ecosystem that we live in. Yeah, um, interesting. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of um, the number of species, there, there's a lot. Um, so with feather mites, the, the, the group that I study, there's about 2,500 species that are described, uh -huh. but it's, it's estimated that that's only maybe 20% of their overall biodiversity. Wow. Um, and so it, there's a lot of un, unknown biodiversity out there, and um, we actually, my my uh, during my master's project um, and also my PhD now, we're describing new species. Oh, so cool. we uh, we've already described four new feather mite species without really even trying that hard to look for them, um, which is kind of amazing that there are there are so many. Uh, Undis unknown species just living out there, just kind of waiting, waiting in the, literally waiting on the wing, in the wings to oh, be. Oh, is that a pun? Described. Is that a pun there? <laughs> and, and also, I was going to tell you for if you're going to describe any new species and you don't know how to spell Shackleforti, I, I can I can send you a text. <laughs> yes, that way you get it, you can you can <laughs> you can name it after me. Although I don't know how proud I'd be. Yeah, I got this uh, this uh, pesky little mite named after me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so maybe, maybe I'll pass on that. <laughs> but uh, I'll, keep, I'll add it to the I'll add it to the list. There you go. Of running list of uh, of uh, scientific names that we keep. There you go. Shackle forty eye. I like that. I haven't I haven't thought of that. Got to add an eye on the end to Latinize it. Yeah, that's right. So so real quick, um, what what's the difference between a a mite bird mite and a bird lice or louse? Yeah, yeah. So so mites are arachnids. So they're related to spiders, um, and they have eight legs. That's that's kind of the the most distinguishing feature. And lice are insects, and so they have six legs. Ah. Um, lice are also a lot, relatively um, a lot bigger than than mites. Mm -hmm. um, but those are the, um, and sort of just the body segmentation is also slightly different. But that's just kind of general between insects and and um mites okay and can can you, bird mites or bird lice attach to humans do we need to worry about them <laughs> no okay. no we we do not have to worry about them they can they can technically get on us but they don't they're they're specific to bird lice and mites are specific to birds and so they don't they can't you know get anything from us they don't complete their life cycle on us they're not gonna 
have a reproducing population yeah. on us or anything like that. Good, so good, we good, don't good. we don't have to worry about yeah. about that. They can't. Some of them do can bite um, and do cause some irritation to humans, but um, it's it's mostly ones that are kind of related to like poultry. Yeah. Um, those those type of okay. Those type of industry. Great. You're, you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, the host of the show, and we've got Alex Matthews as our guest. This is a call-in show. The number to call in if you have a question for me or for Alex is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. We've got a caller. He called before we introduced you, so I don't know what he... He's not going to ask about mites or, or lice, maybe, but let's listen to... John from Fishville. John, are you there? I'm here. This has been interesting to hear, for sure. <laughs> uh, okay, Cliff. I mean, Mr. Shackleford, I. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I've got a question about our, I've called you every year about the, the, the cowbirds. Uh, and uh, in the past, they, you know, they're the ones that migrate from South America all the way to Canada. And they stop at my place to get their belly full. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually about 30 to 50 of them will be swinging through here every year. But this year, I was well over 200. Mm-hmm. Just And that was just a few weeks ago when they were really the maximum. And uh, they're, But they're, they're moving north. I know that. Right. But I wonder why there was such an increase. Is it just the difference in the weather patterns? you think or what you know with with migratory birds there's there's just too many possibilities i mean think about it they're they're not using interstates like we are and roadways they're they're using airspace which there's a lot more of and they can all get together hang out together in in bigger groups or smaller groups it just there's just too much going on to to be able to answer that question john with any authority so uh, it's just the way the wind blows, I guess, is yeah. is maybe the reason for that. So yeah. Um, well, you know, about three weeks ago, maybe it's been a month ago now. That that's when they maxed out, and there was they were about 200 count for gosh, I bet 10 days. Now that wasn't one group, was it? That was just every day a, a new group coming well, in. Well, it's I'm it's hard to know um, without marking a bird. It's really hard to know if you've got repeat visitors or new newbies every day. So I, I don't really know. I don't know how we'd know that without having these birds marked some way. And, and that's a process in and of itself. So, yeah, yeah it's, it could be that you had daily changes. Um, it could be that these birds were sticking around in your area and were visiting the neighbor's feeder Um an hour earlier and every day and then came to yours and you kind of made the round so to speak so it, it's hard to know it, it's very difficult to to answer that so yeah yeah oh and another real quick uh there's those little tiny tiny bright blue little rascals they're not a silver dollar is about as big as they get huh okay and uh, we've had uh, i just see one or two in the evening and boy, they're the brightest blue, but they're so tiny, tiny. Yeah, that's probably the indigo bunting that I mentioned earlier. Um, yeah. So yeah. they're 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 com- coming through. Some will stick around and breed. It, it can be a local breeder um, in the listing area, but there's a vast majority of them 
are, are passing through because um, th these are birds that are going to go farther north so of course they have to pass through here in order to get north so I bet that was an indigo bunting so very cool John I appreciate the call thanks so much well keep up the good work guys okay thank you sir hey hey Alex yeah oh we lost him oh yeah <laughs> So you're listening to Bird Calls. The phone number here is 800-552-8502. And until we get some calls, I've got plenty of questions for Alex. <laughs> so um, how, do, how do these ectoparasites travel from bird to bird? And that is the million-dollar question um, that we are trying to figure out now. Um, one, one way that a lot of ectosymbionts or ectoparasites are transmitted from bird to bird is um, called vertical transmission from the parent birds to the offspring nestlings, so at directly at the nest. Mm -hmm. um, there is evidence for horizontal transmission, which is basically transmission between individuals that are not... Um, either not related to one, not directly related to one another. Um, and there's a lot of um, questions related to, to transmission. So that, that we're trying to figure out right now, actually, because um, some ectosymbionts are specialized to one species, mm. one bird species, whereas some um, ectosymbionts are kind of generalized across multiple different host species mm -hmm. and the reasons for why that is are not really well understood hmm. um so it could be that maybe they maybe the the birds are either uh, they could hybridize so if there are two species of bird that uh, are known to hybridize like golden wing warblers and blue wing warblers they may share the same parasite or symbiont from that that direct um, transmission uh, mm. during copulation, or it could be that maybe some birds that compete for nesting sites more often than others can come into either direct contact or indirect contact um, through nesting materials, and, and so symbionts can get transmitted that way. Mm. There's a lot of a lot of really cool questions um, about that, and, and the cowbird question that just came in reminded me too that, that cowbirds could also potentially be a vector for um, symbionts between species. Yeah. Um, and one one of my projects is, is actually testing that. We, we did that with prothonotary warblers that are parasitized by brown-headed cowbirds. Um, and so we collected mites from brown-headed cowbird nestlings and we that, that were in prothonotary nests. Mm -hmm. And we're looking now. Um, I got the I got the data back a couple, maybe two weeks ago. Um, so we're going to see if brown-headed cowbirds can actually host prothonotary warbler mites, mm -hmm. and, and that could be a potential um, a di another mechanism for how these symbionts can travel from host to host. Yeah, and for, for and for listeners. Um, just to clarify, the cowbird is a nest parasite. We've talked about it in the past, but if you're a new listener, um, a brood parasite is a bird that lays its eggs in another bird's nest. 
and basically says goodbye and lets the foster parents um, uh, start with the egg and, and raise it till it's an adult as if it's its own, but it will um, become a cowbird and do the same thing um, when it's ready to breed. So, um, Alex, we've got some phone calls. Let's let's okay. hear from uh, Ross from Louisiana. Ross, are you there? Yes, doing, sir. Yeah, we're doing great. How are you? I'm fine. I'm on I'm on my way back up from the Gulf Coast right now. I work about 150 miles south of New Orleans, out in the Gulf. That that means uh, that means you have a uh, mer- mermaid tail, right? You're out in the big water. <laughs> That's oh yes, it, this is out in the deep. Deep water. Are you are you are you on an oil rig out there? Yeah, platform. Okay, cool. Oil and gas, oil and gas platform. Okay, but uh, the the uh, cattle eagle still coming. They're still flying by. Oh wow, it's amazing, but isn't it? It is incredible the uh, uh, migration, spring and fall. You see everything. What, but what astonishes me is hummingbirds. Yeah. Before I worked out there, I thought they couldn't fly a mile. That's you know, right. But they're coming across 550 miles. And, How and, in the world? And, and they're, they, they're doing it. They're doing it supercharged too. In in the spring, they're in a hurry. They're trying to get to the best territories. Uh, the males usually get there before the females. And um, if the oil platform you're on wasn't there, you would we would never really know. We've learned a lot from oil platforms and of course ships and boats about what's crossing the Gulf. And so. An oil platform is a great place to take a break um, for a bird. It's also a great place for predators like peregrine falcons and merlins to camp out and wait for a, a ready meal, a tired ready meal too. So what about colorful warblers and things, Ross? Have you encountered those taking a break on your oil platform in April, May? Yes, yes. Cool. The, uh, what, what I really, really like watching is the albatross and the, uh, what's the man of warbler? The, name for him. That's the magnificent frigate bird. Frigate bird. Yeah, are, yeah. We see those a lot out there. That's really cool. Well, if you can ever bring a guest out there, Ross, I, I'm I'm your man. I'd love to come out there in late April, early May, and and see what can be seen out there. But I'm sure that's a liability nightmare for your company. Oh yeah, I can't. Not going <laughs> to happen, is it? But I can Uh-oh. always I can always dream. So, all right, you got any other questions, Ross? No, it's just that uh, I don't know how in the world can a butterfly, I mean, a, uh, a hummingbird, hummingbird do it. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, the old wives' tale that a lot of us grew up with that Grandpa told us is that there's no way that bird can fly in migration. They must hop on the backs of geese. And that's an old myth is that hummingbirds oh, migrate on the backs of geese. They, they don't even go to the same wintering grounds. In other words, the, the, the goose is flying to a different part of the of the country and different part of Latin America than um, that than the, the ruby-throated hummingbird. So so the ruby throat does it himself and crosses the Gulf and it's remarkable. It is the uh, I, I one time I couldn't understand even the pelicans, uh, but one time I saw one take a thermal and go way way up yeah. the circle. And I said, oh, that's how they do the distance flying. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, they make it easy. The thermal helps them by not using up calories because they're not flapping. And, and uh, yeah, it makes, makes life easy. So, all right, Ross, um, if I, maybe if I can slim down, I can fit into your backpack. I'm six foot two. 
I, I'm a heavy dude, but if I lose some weight, do you think I can sneak onto the oil rig with you? My problem is I'm already carrying 100 pounds of stuff. Well, I, I haven't been 100 pounds since probably I was nine, nine months old. So I'm not going to get down that slim. But anyway, it's, it's a good thought. I, I, I'm jealous of your job out there, Ross. I, I wouldn't be doing my job with the, with the uh, oil company. I'd be staring out into the, the abyss looking for birds flying by. So, but anyway, well, th- thank you for the call, Ross. Appreciate that. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's another place for um, another another uh, kind of thought for how ectosymbionts travel from bird to bird is at migration stopover oh. sites. When, especially like those oil rigs where there's a whole bunch of different species kind of all sitting together. together really closely. So that could be another um, transmission site. That, yeah. Um, That's yeah. pretty interesting. It, maybe maybe you'd like to get out on that ri- that platform with me. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, we've got another caller. We have Ken from Nacogdoches. Ken, what do you have for us? Uh, I've got a couple of questions. One is uh, about a possibility of having seen a hybrid. We have a bird feeder that's right outside our dining room, and we watch them quite frequently. And we have been having a lot of rose-bested uh, rose-breasted grosbeaks, as many as five at a time on the feeder. But this bird that I'm inquiring about was about the size of a male cardinal and had the plumage of a male cardinal from his head down. Uh-huh. But his head was very small and black, very dark colored. It looked like it might not even have feathers on it. It was reminded me of a miniature turkey vulture. Uh-huh. But it had a bright orange uh, grosbeak type uh, beak uh-huh so i just uh, i couldn't find anything at all like it especially the fact that it had such a small head yeah well you're you're describing you're describing a cardinal that's in molt and that that yeah and it's usually a call we get in june july so um, but but not all birds are born the same time so they're not all on the same schedule of molt so um cardinals molt their whole feather tract on their head, what, what's called the capital tract. They molt it all at once. So it gives them exactly the look you described, like a vulture. It's a little head because it doesn't have those fluffy feathers. Yep. Um, and so that's not a hybrid. That's just a, a, a male that is, is molting, and he's going to get fresh feathers here soon. And the black, black skin and uh, the beak then was really just a cardinal beak. It looked it, like a, it is a cardinal beak. So the yeah. the skin under the feathers is is a dark gray, and that's yeah. what you saw. So okay. The other question is, we had the bluebirds, and I identified them when I saw them as a indigo bunting, but one day they were out in the lawn in the grass, and there was like ten or twelve of them out there in like a flock. I yep. never heard of a flock of indigo bunting. Oh yeah, I've kicked up. There's a place on the coast I, I kicked up probably 300 indigo buntings with a few paintings mixed in and a few blue grosbeaks, and boy, what a sight that is. That, that yeah, was at a place I, called Powderhorn Ranch, and uh, it, it's now a state park and a WMA, and, and it's a coastal site. But, yeah, in migration, they can get into big groups. Okay, like well, you thanks saw. a lot. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got another call. We've got Danny in Shreveport. Danny, what do you have for us tonight, sir? I've got a question about a bird that just 
uh, flown through here about uh, maybe a week or so. It looks like it's kind of dying out now. Okay. It's got a black head about the size of a cardinal, black head, black back, light gray breast, uh, maybe a little light gray on the tip of the wings, and a bright red throat. Yeah, and I mentioned him in the first couple minutes. That's the male rose-breasted grosbeak. Yeah, you just said that, and yep. I said, well, maybe that's what I'm yep, talking about. Yeah, that's it. It's the one that looks like he's got a bleeding heart. And so, so look. Passing through, is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, he's a migrant. He doesn't breed in the listening area. Um, so, rose-breasted grosbeak. Look, look that one up, and that's your bird. Thanks for your help. Yeah, man. all right. Thank you. You're listening to Bird Calls. This is Cliff Shackleford. Uh, the phone number is 800-552-8502, and we've got Alex Matthews with us, and she is a expert on ectoparasites and ectosymbionts and um alex we've got another call let's let's see what milton from nacogdoches has for us milton are you there i'm here cliff say alex uh what about the uh the number of parasites on a on a on a bird the size of a cardinal or so and the distribution of them on the bird i mean one more on one side more on another uh, and and what about the food source? What 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 do the parasites uh, use for food while they're on the bird? Yeah, that's a great question, Milton. Um, so in terms of avian feather mites, the the ectosymbionts that I study, they can be uh, in terms of their abundance on a on an individual host, there can be just one uh, or two, I guess, and then up to probably 1,500 individuals. 1,500. Um, I was counting mites this past week on cerulean warblers, and there were several individuals with over 1,000 mites um, on them. For cardinals, we have done uh, abundance counts on on those birds. Um, I can't remember exactly what the, the number was, but I do remember that cardinals tend to have a high abundance of mites. Um, maybe five, 500 to 1,000 or so. Um, and they do, interestingly, they do sort of distribute themselves evenly um, between the right side, the, right, uh, the, the feathers on the right wing, and the feathers on the left wing. Um, there's been a little bit of research on that, but not too, too much. But it, it could be that they're, um, they're sort of uh, keeping that balance aerodynamic balance between the left and the right side um, on the bird and also it probably has to do with sort of the wind um, and where the mites fit best on the bird without being flung off during during flight Um, there's only so much space on a bird so they can't you know they can't go everywhere um, especially if if one feather is more um, turbulent than another Um, and then I forgot what was your what was your other question? What what, what is their food? What what do they oh, they yeah. live on? I guess you'd say. And, and Milton, I think I'm hearing some background noise. You got to turn down off turn off your radio or TV because it's ca- causing some problems for us. So go ahead, Alex. Yeah. So their their food source um, for mites, at least. So so lice will either eat blood, they're, they're blood, suck, blood suckers, so they'll actually um, bite the skin and, and suck out blood. 
Um, and some of them also eat feathers. So there are feather-eating lice and blood-sucking lice. But mites, um, a little less is known. So it's thought that they eat the, the uh, uropygial oil, which is their um, preen gland oil. So you see birds kind of like reach around with their beak to their back, sort of to their rump. What they're doing is squeezing their um, preen gland. There's a gland at the base uh, at the base of their tail, sort of, on their rump. And they squeeze that, a little bit of oil comes out, and they put that on their feathers. It's thought that mites will eat that, um, but it's also known that they eat sort of bacteria and fungi and other um, microbes that, that live on the feathers as well. Um, and I'm actually studying that right now. We're trying to determine if mites are uh, selecting for certain microbes um, that are available to them to, to see if they prefer some microbes over another because um, that can help us sort of understand if they are providing, perhaps providing a cleaning service to birds if they're preferentially eating um, sort of feather-degrading bacteria or if they're harming birds by eating sort of the, the good bacteria on, mm. on, on feathers. But So that's still in the works, but that's kind of what we know about what they eat. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Milton. Thanks, Milton. You're listening to Bird Calls. You've got a few minutes left to call in with your questions. We have Alex Matthews here. The number is 800-552-8502. Alex, do feather mites and lice impact a bird's health or impact their ability to fly? Yeah, so um, at least with what we understand about feather lice, um, where they or feather-eating lice, they do cause, they're, they're known to be parasitic because they are taking blood meals from the birds as well as biting holes in the feathers, um, which is, you know, that is a, um, problematic for the birds. Um, so so in t- with lice, it's a little bit, it's more well-known that they are actually parasites because they are causing harm to the birds that is measurable. Um, or more easily measured. With the feather mites, we are less certain about their impact on the birds, um, even though they are usually in much higher abundances on on birds than lice are. Lice tend to be in lower. um, There's not as many lice on birds in Mm. in number than there are mites, typically. Um, And so there's a lot of... Um, different ways you can measure the impact of mites, whether you're looking at sort of uh, the abundance of mites versus maybe body condition or survival or um, reproductive output or, um, uh, you know, there's there's a number of different uh, indices that you can look at to say, okay, what what are we actually trying to um, measure in terms of that, the impact of mites, mm-hmm. um, and it's not really, it's not really well known. It seems like most of the research is saying that they, that they are probably commensal, um, potentially mutualistic. Well, um, d- define both actually, of those terms. So commensal meaning they're not harming nor helping the birds. They're just kind of like living on the birds. They're not causing harm to the birds, but they're also not helping the birds in any way so they're just just living um 
kind of just alongside the birds with no impact on them. Mutualists, meaning that they could be providing some benefit for the birds, like by potentially eating that feather-degrading bacteria mm-hmm. off of the feathers and take, mm-hmm. like cleaning cleaning the feathers. Um, and there, some older um, papers were looking, were saying they could potentially be parasites because the you know there's correlations between body condition and um, poor body condition and an increase in the number of mites. But there's not been a lot of replication on on those some of the on any of these studies really. So it's it's really poorly known about um, what the impact of mites are, and that's a big question in in our in our research right now. Yeah. Um, and that's I mean one of my one of my uh, projects right now that I'm that is currently underway. I just was working on it this this morning. I was out. Um, looking for some some birds that that we tagged or that we uh, banded last year um, where I looked at the number of mites on these birds and I removed mites experimentally removed mites from half of the birds that we caught and mm-hmm. now we're looking to see if does their body condition change from one from one year and do they survive to the next year mm-hmm. um, so we're 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 trying to answer that question more experimentally, but uh, in a field, in a uh, like a natural setting in the field. So you, you um, took the mites off, you let the bird go, and that the, the goal is to recapture the bird next year and see what's changed, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's not a lab yeah. setting. It's a, like you said, it's a natural setting. Natural setting, okay. yeah. And we have, control, we have control birds, too. So we've got sort of this control set where we didn't remove any of the mites and a experimental set where we removed all of the mites yeah. from, from the birds and took the same measurements and the only, you know, we'll see what the impact of the right. mites is. Interesting. Well, we've got yeah. a couple callers. Um, let's get to Carter from Aiken, Texas. Carter, what do you have tonight? Yeah, I was calling about a little small red bird. I've seen a blue bunny before and it's not much bigger than it. But and, it's, it's not a cardinal that's got dark darker colored wings kind of a gray color and he, and he's red yes he's it, solid red it's probably a summer tanager um the, there's a cousin called the scarlet tanager but he you said grayish wings summer tanager wings are red and the scarlet tanager has black wings but there's really nothing else that's all red um solid red like a cardinal except for the tanager so uh, Carter, I'm guessing that you've got um, uh, one of the two tanagers passing through. Well, that's what just Yeah. I've called every while back. It's been a while about that white blizzard I've seen. Yeah, okay. And I didn't think about telling you, but I had a mockingbird here. It was a mockingbird, and he was white. Wow. Okay. I, I've seen a white mockingbird before. Only once. It was in college, so it was a long time ago, and it's pretty spectacular looking. So, yeah, there, there's yeah. there's uh, uh, leucism and albinism is not that unusual in birds. So, but that's that's pretty cool that you're seeing two species: the the, the vulture and the and the mockingbird. So, okay. Well, very good, Carter. That, Mockingbird stayed here for about two years. Yeah. Disappeared. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for the call, Carter. 
Uh, did you want to add anything to that, um, Alex, to the aberrant feathers? Are you, are you finding birds with leucism or albinism when you're doing your feather work? I, I actually haven't, um, but that's really cool. I, I have seen this year um, some pretty interesting uh, feather colors on my prosonotary warblers. Oh, like that funny um, crown. I've seen, yeah. seen with the like a rufous rusty crown patch. Yeah, we call them we call them mudhead. Oh, mudhead. Um, okay. They that that happens because they're going in and out. Off, most likely they're going in and because they're going in and out of their cavities. Oh. Um, and they're just scratching the top of their head on the muddy cavity entrance. Oh, okay. Well, that explains um, or, it. I've seen those. Or digging in, kind of digging in the moss on on trees, oh, collecting nesting material, but. And then I've also seen this year, a, you know, really bright orange prothonotaries uh, on their face and their breast, um, which is, it's really, it's really cool to see that. Um, I've never seen that. What causes that? Those are, um, so yellows, reds, and oranges are all carotenoid based, yep. meaning that they're getting them from their diet. So mm -hmm. if they're eating foods that are in, you know, high in carotenoids, their, their feathers are typically um, brighter orange, yellow, red. Yeah. Um, and I also have had a, a personitary this year with really white feathers. It's not been um, leucistic uh, like the, the mockingbird that was mentioned, but there's a lot of, there's been a lot of really blonde, not, not bright yellow, but sort of blonde, oh. um, whitish feathers around its eyes and on its head. It's, yeah, that's the first one I've ever seen like that. So there is a lot of variation in plumage and the in the feather colors. Maybe that's like the color of my goatee. The older I get, it goes from black to to gray, and now it's white. So maybe it's an old old prothonotary. So Alex, <laughs> we thinking that too. We've got some more calls. We're going to try to race through. Um, Anne from okay. Nacogdoches. Anne, we're we got just a couple minutes. What do you have? Well, I'd like to know more about the process of seeing and counting the mites. If they are na uh, naked eye visible, or is this magnified glasses or microscope? Mm. I'd like to understand the process. Good Thank question. You. Yeah, that's a great question. We so we have a couple of different ways that we count these mice. Um, they are visible to the naked eye. You can we when we have the birds in our hand, we hold up their wing kind of against uh, the sunlight just to get some ambient light going through the through the feathers and. You can see them all lined up on the feather barbules, so where they look like little highways of, of um, mites. They just look like specks of dust um, with the naked eye. They're really, really, really tiny. They're um, maybe the size of the, the um, tip of a pen. But what we'll do um, is either take really uh, up-close photos, so with a macro lens on our camera, take pictures of the mites and you can zoom in on zoom in on those photos on your computer and you can see where one mite starts and one might like where it starts and ends. They kind of just look like little bumps. Um, and we will either count them individually like that, or recently we've been doing, because we've done so many of those individual counts, we can pretty well do a pretty good job of estimating the abundance just by looking at how much of the feather it's, those mites are taking up. Um, so a feather that's super, super covered in mites, at least for the birds 
the small birds that we, the warblers that we work with, there's probably 250 mites on one feather um, if the feather wow. is completely covered. Um, so we can kind of use that as sort of an estimate to, to, to get uh, abundance, abund- mite abundance on those individuals. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for the call, Ann. We've got a couple more calls on deck, so let's try to get through them. Laura from South Arkansas. Laura, what do you have for, hopefully, for Alex? <laughs> well, it's it's not, but it's a shocker. Um, <laughs> I live in South Arkansas, and I saw a parrot in my tree this week. A parrot. What? And it was, um, I can't tell you the head color. I did have time to get my glasses, though. He was in that tree long enough to get the glasses. And um, I would say orange wings, a green, most predominantly green back, um, blue tail with a yellow tip. Hmm. Well, somebody lost, someone lost their pet bird. That's what I knew you were going to tell yeah. me, the first thing I started screaming was non-native, non-native. Yeah, right. But um, I tell you what, I feel like I've been blessed from above just to have seen such a, a beautiful, fantastic yeah. bird in the tree. It, that's, All right? That's pretty neat. Well, cool. Well, hopefully it gets back home, Laura, because I'm sure it was neat for you, but the owner's probably crying and staying up late wishing that that the parrot would come home. So. Well, he, the, I think he was feeding. He was feeding on something. Yeah. So, anyway, okay. uh, but it was it was a shocker. Yeah. Y'all have a great time. Okay. Thank, thank you, thank Laura. Bye bye. We've got Dudley from Marshall. Dudley, you're on the air. Thank you. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, yesterday, we uh, started seeing rose-breasted grosbecks. Okay. And uh, I had not seen any, I did not see any last year, but uh, starting about 15 years ago, we would get a, a, a couple. Yeah. But this past, this past series, we had numerous. I mean, every day I saw one or two, uh, numer- numerous times there were five or six of them, uh, probably usually about uh Two to one on males versus females. Cool. But I just, I was just surprised, really shocked that we had so many of them that uh, were passing through, and I, I almost thought that, gosh, these guys maybe are going to stay. But I, I noticed that uh, on Saturday, I guess it was, I never saw any more, and I haven't seen any since then. But I was, I was just surprised at where they all showed up because we've never seen more than one or two at a time. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm looking at the estimate of the world population of rose-breasted grosbeak. It's 4.7 million. So that's not surprising that you've seen a few of those pass through, Dudley. Uh, so thank you for the call. We're out of time. Uh, Alex, I had so many more questions for you, and we're just going to have to postpone and do do the rest of them at another time, uh, maybe uh you know, you'll be finished with your PhD soon, so maybe you can come back on the air as a as a professional or a postdoc even or something like that. How about that? That sounds great. I would love to. Great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So we're going to close with a conservation tip, and that tip is called plant a tree, but not just any tree.
When a tree dies in your yard, consider replacing it with a native species that's site appropriate. Native means indigenous to your area, and site appropriate means that it requires the conditions that your yard has, like soil type, available sunlight, and so forth. In order to benefit the species we profiled at the beginning of this episode, the cedar waxwing, consider planting a native berry-giving tree or shrub like a deciduous holly, mulberry, or black cherry, all of which would be appropriate where I live. And while you're at it, get rid of any non-native fruit-bearing trees and shrubs like pyracanthus, Chinese tallow, Bradford pear, and crepe myrtle, and replace them with natives. The birds will thank you for it. You'll be doing your part to minimize the spread of an invasive plant species that's native to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Plant a tree, but not just any tree. A little research beforehand will go a long way. Do it for the birds. That concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackleford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio, and our guest, Alex Matthews, a PhD candidate at Arkansas State University. This show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound file of a cedar waxwing was recorded by Paul Marvin and can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for the waxwing on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like for me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, June 13th. And remember, do it for the birds.